everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 150. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Alexis Sears. She'll be with us in just a moment. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, all that good stuff, so we can help poetry spread around the internet. Now, like I mentioned, we're going to go to our Poet Respond Poet of the Day first. Shannon Mann is here. Uh, she's a wonderful Your Body um, guzzle, and here she is. Shannon, hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Hi, Tim. I'm doing well, and um, just to let you know, my daughter has opened her eyes, so <laughs> she might make an appearance here. Okay, well, we love, uh, we love cat photo bombs, but uh, a crying baby is probably even cuter, so don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> so, um, so this poem that you wrote, your body—I mean, of course, everybody knows what it's about. Over the last two weeks, we've probably gotten five hundred poems submitted about um, the rover. Like literally, five hundred, I think, is the number of poems wow. about the um, overturning of Roe versus Wade. But the, you bring in other stuff. It's around the world. It's it's uh, it's everywhere that this happens. It's sort of a perpetual yes. battle um, that you yeah. know, we're gaining ground and now we're losing some ground on. Do I just explain? what inspired and compelled you to write this poem? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, um, I think my contributors know it. it's pretty short and simple. And um, I think the reason for that is um, very long and complicated <laughs> because uh, continuously, um, almost every day you hear so much news, um, which is, I think, a direct attack on um, uh, minorities in this world in different shapes and forms. Um, unfortunately, and I feel like people spend, or lawmakers spend so much time and headspace trying to um, hurt and control people that there's hardly any time spent to actually care for people, which they say is the intention. Um, and maybe, maybe it is, maybe that's what they think it is, um, but truly it's hindering and hurting people, um, especially people on the ground, I think, who are, as one would say, the common man, um, they're really hurting. And it's also a personal issue for me as well before I had my daughter I had to have um, a DNC due to a miscarriage which is also known as a missed abortion mm -hmm. and um, it was in I was in New Zealand then and you know if that was illegal which it's fast becoming right now I'd be dead uh, but more importantly Anasuya my daughter wouldn't be here mm -hmm. <laughs> so it is also a personal issue as well yeah, I mean, that's the thing that gets missed in the discussion so much is that, you know, not, ha not having a baby at a certain time allows for another baby to be born at a better time. And if you, you know, if you have one when you're you're young and not ready, then you won't have one later. I mean, it's as far as yeah. life. I mean, I don't know. It's just there's not a lot of logic in, in not, you know, in banning things like that. But um, so the the poem you wrote, um, just such a powerful poem is a guzzle. Um, do you know, can you say anything about why you chose that form? Did it, did it do you know you're writing that? Um ahead of time or or not um yes i think um as i was kind of mentioning a little bit earlier before we began is that i really love the form of the guzzle i think it's very unique in its construct i think it gives space for us to be uh far more i venture to say dramatic than uh today's modern poetry allows and of course by saying that i'm i'm then saying that oh modern poetry is somehow specified or curtailed by certain standards and one can say that it's not but truly who are we kidding because everything in our world is specified and curtailed by certain standards and much of modern poetry is is so by uh, one can say you know the kind of mfa style poetry however the guzzle being a traditional um, 
older poem. And at this point, my daughter's going to make an appearance. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> um, being a more traditional older poem allows us to kind of reach towards the inner depths of our being, I think, and be as like, you know, kind of bleed our heart out onto the page um, far more than uh, a traditional, say, blank verse poem might allow or be comfortable with. Um, and this this poem or the subject demanded, I think, more than just um, softness, quietness, and hiding. Mm -hmm. it, it demanded to be shouted. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for people who don't know, um, you know, how the structure is, I mean, it's, it's very clear to hear, you'll hear it coming up, the repeating words in the internal rhyme that sort of precedes the word. But in, in a guzzle, each stands, in a traditional one anyway, each stands as like its own little world. So it's almost like a haiku-ish thing where, where each, you know, you can jump between different like levels of reality as you move through the poem. It's not all one narrative yes. straight through, which is an important aspect of it. And one that really makes it fit in a time like this when, um, you know, so many places around the world um, you know, things are, things are happening all at once. Um, yes. do you, do you want to go ahead and read it? Um, or do yes, you think I, I could do. also play it if it'd be easier? I could just play the audio. Well, let's see how Anna treats this. <laughs> I think it's kind of cool that I've got okay. a baby yeah, on sure. my lap while reading this. <laughs> so we'll try. Yeah. Anna, shall we do this? What do you think? All right, let's try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your body voice is not enough. They want to own your body. Chewed from flesh to blood to bone, your body. Caged by crib, church, school, hospital. Ovum, tumor, bile, stone, your body. You learn to walk in a war zone where your body was then shown your body. Torn for God, for man, for child. Those who came to save with thorns have sown your body. Beauty is exile. Pain and inheritance, encased behind bulletproof glass, a gemstone in your body. No one will love you after 40. The capitalist Cohen to sell confidence, cologne, retinol, silicone in your body. If you sell storm, sell either thrones for reform. They jeer like hyenas, governed by hormones, your body. My bundle of cells, I named you before the vacuum claimed you. My daughter would be motherless if I'd blown your body. Lovers of life, they drill a hole through it all. Oceans, Amazon, borders, ozone, your body. Doctors deny, they follow the word of God. The word made flesh underneath the headstone, your body. A hundred women will be sacrificed for an unborn child. We want what you do, not what you are, come clone your body lilies and iron palms ants in an abandoned house they ransack as they did sierra leone your body violating divine law for dressing like a man burned on the stake oh joan your body whether you marry man animal or music it is only good for a moan your body if you're hungry for a heart trip out the rivers say to the salmon let me do bone your body. First, loving a body like your own was outlawed. Now, loving your own body over another. Prisons, promises adorn your body. You're burning, they console the fire. When you speak, silence souls. Truth is invisible and as unknown your body. 
Indifference is more violent than outrage. Shannon, cry through the eye of the cyclone. Fight, for you are not alone. Your body. Oh, that was wonderful. Thanks so much for reading that, Chad. And it was great having the uh, guest appearance as well. Um, yeah, just a wonderful, powerful poem um, and a great reading of it, too. I really appreciate it that you could join us today and, and share it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> okay. And now um, the uh, other poem that we're going to be looking at today, a preview of Tuesday's poem. Mather Schneider is a poet. He was one of the uh, Rattle Poetry Pri- or Rattle Chapbook Prize winners. Um, we published his chapbook, um, A Bag of Bones back in 2000, when was that? Like maybe 18 or so? And this is his first time he's ever been on Poets Respond. Um, he usually doesn't write poems this quickly. This was uh, about the, um, uh, the story, which everybody's probably seen too. Um, on a Texas road called The Mouth of the Wolf, a semi-truck packed with migrants was abandoned in the sweltering heat. And I believe 50 uh, people, 53 people died in this truck. And um, this is, uh, this is Mather Schneider's poem. He says, um, you know, it's self-explanatory is his note here. Um, and this is Mather Schneider's poem. I'll just read it for Tuesday, The Price of Meat. The Price of Meat. Because of the trucker shortage, my book on Stoic philosophy arrived three days late. On the same day, they found 50 dead immigrants in a truck outside San Antonio. I rode my bicycle in the heat to the post office, just like I rode it out of Illinois 40 years ago, all the way to Death Valley. And when I got there, they told me I would die if I tried to ride across. So I caught a lift with a guy in a VW bus to Los Angeles, back when people would do nice things like that. At the post office, I opened the metal door, reached in my box, and was happy to finally have my book, hoping the Stoics could help me deal with adversity. When I got home, my wife was crying. She told me about the dead immigrants found baked in that semi-truck. My wife, who herself walked across the Mexican border 20 years ago, following a coyote sweating through the creosote, to this day she will not tell me the details of that journey. We both watched the news in our little apartment, where the day before we had been complaining about the heat and the landlord who won't fix the cooler and the price of meat and how the mail never comes on time anymore. And we didn't know how to make sense of it, those blistered corpses when the metal door was opened, the blinking eyes of the few left alive. After thousands of miles in that goddamn oven, we were both so upset we got into an argument, the fifth argument in so many days, until she went into the bedroom and I turned off the TV and opened my book on Epitectus, who said it is best to maintain an indifferent attitude toward things you can't control. Even the death of your own child is part of the divine law. Everything arrives the only way it can, and love and happiness are always right there for the taking. And that is uh, The Price of Meat by Mather Schneider. That's going to be Tuesday's poem. Um, so I um, hope you appreciated that one. Another excellent one by Mather. One of the so much rattlish poets around. And now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest. So hang tight, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, uh, Alexis Sears, um, Alexis Sears, um, his first book, Out of Order, won the 2021 Donald Justice Poetry Prize and was just published by Autumn House Press. Alexis received her BA in writing seminars from Johns Hopkins University and her MFA in poetry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work has been widely published, including in Rattles Poetry Spawn last month with her heartbreak guzzle. Um, she was a scholar at the Swanee Writers Conference in 2019, and currently she teaches ninth grade English in Oakland, California. 
Here she is, Alexis Sears. Hey, Alexis, how you doing? Good. How are you, Tim? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's nice to see you again. Um, do you want to start out with a poem? Sure. Why not? Um, okay, so all of my poems are going to be from my book, Out of Order. Let's start with, you know, I think in light of everything that's going on right now, things are looking pretty bleak. So I want to start with a poem that's relatively happy. And it's called Daughters. I wrote it while I was at the Sewanee Writers Conference in Tennessee in 2019. It's on page 82. Okay. So tell me when you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, daughters. We spend too much time writing about sadness, Trevor says. He's right. The poet's sadness is such an irritating trope. I'm glad this summer here in Tennessee, I've witnessed what might be joy snug in my shoes. I've witnessed what could pass for healing. That old hit miss word so overused by shrinks and friends who suffer endlessly who make fast friends with chewed up fingernails, tangled ends of trendy bobs and updos, far too tired to keep playing the role. I too am tired when almost strangers tell me they've admired my poems for being honest about suffering. Good for my art, apparently. Our suffering comes from wanting, an old website buffering informs me Buddha said, but here right now in Tennessee, I hardly want. Right now, my blood is carbonated bliss, Sprite. How have I become this overflowing sweetness? Bubbly, fellow writers call me. Sweetness from wine on tongues, our feelings of completeness, somehow foreign but familiar at the same time. Mosquitoes and familiar smells of fresh paved gravel, liquor, were those we feared, those who we never thought we'd be, the happy ones. I always thought I wanted daughters nothing like me, not like whispers in the chaos of the city, their inky sentences colliding. City girls obsessed with being pretty, gritty, and acidic smart-ass words. I still question everything sometimes. The still Sewanee ponds, the daily pops of Advil. But questions lie beneath my cool gray covers, total outcasts now. The word joy covers my skin like swelling bug bites. I discover that happiness is neither strength nor weakness. The possibility that my own weakness isn't weakness. Maybe I should speak less about this so-called angst. It'd be okay to have daughters like me. I'll be okay, I realize, frightened, untarnished array of my worries on a platter, wooden, clean, relieved though. Who knows, maybe now I'm clean, absolved, a different woman, finally seen. Yeah, beautiful. Um, was that a villanelle? It's a blue stanza poem. So it's little tersit, and then the first two lines have the same word, and the third word rhymes with the previous two. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So yeah, that's the reason why when we had, um, you know, you were on Poets Respond um, with that heartbreak guzzle, and um, and then I saw that you won the Donald Justice Poetry Prize, which is then, and that's why I asked you on because I love that that prize. Um, it's given to how do they put it at the back of the book? They say like. Um, it's given to somebody whose work is like informed or pays attention to what's the word? Um, a distinguished, let's see, um, a f original book length collections of poems that pay attention to form. That's how they put it for consideration. So, yeah, so, so these are for, for poets that pay attention to form. I love the sort of the, 
the uh, freedom of that word choice. And also, I just love form, too. And so it's great to have books of form of poetry. And what works for so wonderfully in this book is that you have this very intimate, confessional-type voice. Like, it's almost like diaristic. It's like talking to yourself, almost, um, in a casual way. And then it's pushed against the form. And there's such a great... Uh, like tension between those two things, the strict form and the freedom of the voice. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you came into writing form as opposed to other styles of poetry? Because the, the thing about form is that everybody complains that there's not enough form in poetry anymore. But then who's writing it? It drives me crazy. It's one of the things that just perpetually um, drives me crazy because I want to publish more form too. But if 5% of the submissions are formal, um, you know, how many can I get in the magazine? Um, so, so anyway, um, so how is, it that you, how is it that you were drawn to form? So I first started writing in form um, when I was, I think it was my third year at John Hopkins. I took a class called, it was just a forms class. It was um, taught by this guy named Greg Williamson. Greg is amazing. There's like a 0% chance he's watching this because he's very old school when it comes to technology. But um, that class was amazing because I think there's this sort of antiquated idea that when somebody says formal poetry, we go to like Robert Frost or some other dead white man who's making rhymes. And a lot of people are worried that that's not relevant anymore. Um, so I think that's what I liked so much about Greg's class. We were reading people like Erica Dawson and Natalie Shapiro and Kaki Wilkinson, people who are like young, modern people, um, but who are writing in these really creative, formal, technical ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a, a section in the book where you, you talk about going back to uh, free verse. Um, do you, how often do you write write free verse? Or do you find, I mean, one of the downsides maybe of writing in form that I find is like once you do, it like gets stuck in your head and it's really, it becomes hard to write without it being informed. Do you find that? Oh, absolutely. You know that Frost, uh, tennis without a net saying yeah. about like, free versus tennis without a net? I don't, I mean, I somewhat agree, not in like a derogatory, pejorative way, like, oh, that's just not poetry. It's without a net. But for me, I need that net. Mm -hmm. I think maybe like 30%, 40% of the book is free verse. Um, But it's not, it's not as easy for me. I think sometimes when I start to write, I just sort of get lost when there's no structure. Um, That's why I like form. It's sort of a puzzle, right? So you get these rules. And then within those rules, you can decide what you want to say and how you want to say it. But if I just get a blank piece of paper, I notice that if I don't have a form, I'll have to write for a really long time before I even realize what it is I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So I always try to challenge myself to write more free verse, but form is just the best, isn't it? Form <laughs> is so great. I mean, I do. I do just love it. Um, and, and there's something about just the way that when a poem is formal, like it clicks and it all feels like one solid object that couldn't have been anything other than what it is, um, which I think is one of the big appeals of it. Um, so uh, let's hear another poem. Okay. I think since we're talking about free verse, I want to do a free verse poem. And this one, there are a couple poems. If you've read this book, you'll notice that a lot of uh, musicians make appearances. So we have some, you know, some Bowie in here, some Earth, Wind and Fire. People keep asking me why Courtney Love is in one of the poems, but like she deserves it. So why not? (laughs) This one is called Golden Years, um, which is based on the Bowie song, Golden Years. And what page? Oh, page 10. Okay. It's at the beginning. When Christine asks me to describe my history of depression, I tell her about the Christmas video. I'm four, maybe five, 
twirling a pigtail while my brother opens his toy race car. You looked so sad, my mother said years later. I didn't realize. Christine hands me a box of tissues and I joke that I can't believe I'm crying. At night, I wander in dark lit rooms while Bowie croons through headphones. I dream of handcuffs, of running pointy fingers through a young man's curls, a serrated knife scraping a slope of a smile onto his flesh. Even the sun is a philanderer, bringing home roses to every woman on earth, its rays shading its face like a cap. Excellent. That was Golden Years. Again, this is Out of Order, um, Alexis Sears' newest book. Um, and speaking of that title, I love the title too. It's one of the things that's great because the, um, can you explain how the title came to be? Cause I, I just think the, the, the book does move around through time a lot. And so there's a great kind of shuffling to it. And then it, it appears when the actual line appears, it becomes very important too. It's like a different, totally different, like level layer. Um, how did you pick that as the title of the book? I am so happy you like the title because I've always really struggled with titles, oh, like yeah. a lot. Um, I remember bringing a poem to workshop in college and I just gave up on write, like writing a title. I just called it Untitled. The professor couldn't believe it. He was he was horrified. But um, I think, well, to be honest, I will disclose this here and never again. The, po the book was originally called Out of Order because there was a poem in the book called Out of Order mm -hmm. that was about a vending machine that was broken. So when I cut the poem, I realized that the phrase out of order was still in the book elsewhere. And I realized it was relevant because I think out of order has so many different meanings and connotations, you know, out of order as in broken, out of order as in like chronologically, like, which I think the book does, I kind of jump around from memory to memory and out of order as in like crazy chaos, uh, lack of decorum. And I think all three of those meanings work I hope with this book. So I really like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really does. It's a great, it's one of those titles. It's just a great metaphor for, you know, what you're experiencing uh, as you read the book. It's, it's really works really well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came into writing poetry just in the first place? Is it something you've always done or is it something that you picked up later? Um, how did, how did that become, come to be? So I actually had never really written a poem until I was 18. So my childhood was relatively poetry free. Um, when I was in high school, I read some T.S. Eliot. I thought it was cool. And then I never really thought about it again. Um, I come from a family where like my mom was a lawyer. Um, she's been so great in terms of supporting me with poetry. But the point is like, I wasn't growing up exposed to poetry. It never occurred to me that that was something I wanted to do. Then I went to Johns Hopkins and I took a class with Richie Hoffman. Do you know him? No, I don't actually. Oh gosh, you should meet him. Richie's the coolest. But um, right away, I thought he was just amazing. I was kind of intimidated by him because he was just so cool. But when he told me, you know, hey, I think you're a poet, I was skeptical, but I figured, okay, you know, he's great. I'll give it a try. And then it just kind of took on a life of its own. Hmm. And what was it that you think drew you to it? Um, was there there's something that you, like, what did you get out of it right away, the process of writing? Was there some kind of, you know, emotional release or the, the getting lost in it? What was it? I think poetry and writing in general, but for me, mostly poetry is just such a fruitful way to sort of work through feelings and emotions and maybe things that you're not ready to say out loud yet or things that you don't know how to say out loud. Um, a lot of the book talks about my dad who passed away when I was a kid. And I had a lot of feelings about that. And I didn't even really know where to begin when it comes to talking about it or sharing it with people verbally. Um, so when I sat down, I just started to write. 
Um, and I let the poem write itself. Like I let the poem say what I'm trying to say. And then I just feel like it's really nice to be able to make something out of pain or out of feelings and to have, you know, something actually concrete on a paper. Yeah, yeah. We talk about the power of poetry to be healing all the time on the show, because I think that's one of the main things it does. Um, you know, and, and we talk too much probably about James Pennebaker and his research on um, um, expressive writing as a way to relieve um, the, the all the problems that having repressed emotions create physically. Um, and it's very apparent in this book. I mean, it feels, you know, it feels very much like you're working through issues as you're writing through these poems. And, and, and the, um, the honesty comes forth really strongly, too. I mean, it almost feels like you're eavesdropping on like a therapy session, and you're hearing the, the most important things in your entire life story. Um, do you ever feel, how do you feel about like, like it's, and then, so it's one thing to do that like privately, but then to make that public is a totally different thing. So how do you feel about, about having that all out in the book like that? Like how does your, your family feel about it? And how do you feel about strangers reading about it? Is it, is that part of the healing too? Maybe. I get that question a lot. And I think it never really occurred to me that this was super personal until people started reading it and saying, wow, we're learning a lot about you or, you know, you're really being honest, you're really being vulnerable. It never occurred to me to be anything other than that. So, you know, I was just writing, you know, how I felt and who I was and um, people were like, wow, I can't believe you're sharing all of that. Um, I think what's been really interesting for me is reading the reviews of this book um, because there's so much synopsis at the beginning. Like this book is about a girl who's mixed race, who's struggling with her dad's death, who's been through this and this and this. And there's something really weird, not bad weird, but there's something really interesting about hearing your story in somebody else's words. Yeah. And I think that for me was a little um, difficult because I'm at such a good place in my life right now. So reading, oh, you know, this person went through it and she's sharing so much felt really strange. Mm -hmm. Um but I think writing this book was sort of healing. And I think um, other people reading it who maybe have gone through similar things, I think I think it's resonating with them a little bit, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of what, what poetry does is create a container for the things that are difficult in our lives. And then, you know, it, it come, becomes something outside of us that we can look at and interrogate and understand a little better when we have just a little bit difference that a poem provides. And then you can share that and, and pass that sort of briefcase of, of feelings on to somebody else who appreciates it, too. Um, and it's just why, I mean, poetry is such a wonderful thing. Um, but let's hear another poem. Okay. And before I read that, I just want to say briefcase of feelings. That was so great. And if you don't mind, I might steal it for my next poem. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll credit you. Maybe you don't have to. Everything, everything here is free in public domain. Well, not everything. I shouldn't say that. But a lot of so stuff. This poem is called Hair Sestina. Um, I can't believe this, but Hair Sestina is going to be in the best American poetry anthology. Oh, that wow. Congratulations. So, That's awesome. Thank you. I, it's shocking to me, but I'm really happy about it. So the poem is called Hair Sestina. It's about hair. It's a Sestina. But what it's really about is um, I'm mixed race. A lot of people don't know that or they don't believe that or whatever. But my dad was black and my mom is white. And because my dad passed away when I was 11, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood being raised by white people. And there were so many elements of black culture that I was really missing out on and that I'm trying to teach myself now. So this poem is about black hair and all the different types of styles and textures. Um, and it's about me just trying to teach myself what it means to be black or mixed race um, in today's society. 
Hair Sestina. I'm 24 and yes, by now I know I have a problem. Oh, but don't we all, everyone jokes as if it's really brilliant, but not like this. A slippery chunk of life has slid on by and still I am without an inkling of real knowledge about black hairstyles. Some bus driver says, you're black in name, but you will never really know their struggles. There, it sticks. I'm left without a comeback since I know it's true. She's all proud now and continues on. Your life seems easier than most. Gee, that is brilliant. I'm not sure if I'm hurt or not. A brilliant professor told me once her hair dyed black as licorice bites. Sometimes, you know, in life, you'll want to cry but can't. Just so you know, the answer is to bite your thumb. That's all. My cluelessness, though, soon I'll be without a thumb, a life, a man to dine with, out of time. I only care about hair now. Brilliant black scholar is what I aim for. I spend all my leisure time these days researching black hair looks. I nod, I practice, hope I'll know a twist out when I see it. I watch Life, the one with Eddie Murphy, plan a life where someday I'll have cornrows, braids without the insecurity. Should I? Oh no, no flashcards. What's the point of being brilliant when I wear white girl hair to Sam's Club, lack inheritance and understanding? All I know is this, it wouldn't be right to call what happened to me abandonment. See, life can be too hard for us, including my black father, once Marine, 6'2", without someone to speak to, even me. Not brilliant, but he could have helped me come to know my hair, my blackness, self. Oh well, without some emptiness, what's life? 24, brilliant, accomplished, all I know is what I don't. And that was uh, Hair Sestina. And again, we're reading poems from Out of Order, um, Alexis Sears' uh, newest book, um, which won the Donald Justice Poetry Prize recently. And congratulations on having that in Best American Poetry. When did you find out about that? That's pretty recent, isn't it? Yeah, I think I found out maybe January. Um, I had no idea that it was even in contention. I just Mm -hmm. was shocked, pleasantly shocked. Yeah, they, they come out of nowhere for those. Um, mm-hmm. And did, did they call you or did they email? It was an email. Uh-huh. Yeah, very cool. That must have been a happy day. It was. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, so if you have any questions for Alexis, uh, let me know in the comments, either on uh, Facebook or, um, or YouTube. I'll pass them along. Um, so here, here's one already from um, T.R. Paulson. She says, Alexis, do editors and peers try to steer you away from formal poetry or to free versify your poems? And that's a very interesting question because, I don't know, I mean, I, I kind of hate when editors do anything, <laughs> like, like tell you to do anything. Like, I mean, that's not our job, I feel like. Um, but, but do you ever have, has it ever happened to you? It has happened. Um, it's happened in sort of a passive aggressive, subtle way. No one's ever said like, hey, see this, Sestina, maybe you should make it a free verse. I agree with you that editors shouldn't do that. I think that's such a dumb thing. That's like saying like, hey, see this burrito? Maybe you should make it sushi. Like it just doesn't make sense. Um, but I do think there are a lot of people who don't quite understand form or they don't, they resist it. And I've never understood that. But um, I think before this book came out, there were experiences when I felt a little bit discouraged with form and the reaction I was getting. And I kind of tried go in the free verse direction um, until I just decided to stick with stick with what you're good at, mm-hmm. uh, which is form. So, 
Yeah, I had a poetry professor as an undergrad when I didn't take poetry you know, seriously at all. Um, and she said, um, no rhyming in this class, in a poetry class. Can you believe that? Oh I mean, God. even free verse is full of rhymes. I mean, what are you talking about? But yeah. So, I mean, at the time, I, you know, I knew she meant like no sing-songy meter. Um, but still, just having said that is just, I can't believe that anybody would ever tell anybody that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they're a poetry fan and even if they're not a poetry fan most people who don't read a lot of poetry like their being rhymed so it's a very unusual bizarre thing to say where do you think that comes from i mean like why do you think people there's like a history of people being turned off by it more recently at least in like academic settings do you th- what do you think the source of that is i don't know to be honest i wonder the same thing and i think i know we talked a little bit at the beginning about form having that sort of form and rhyme having that sort of old school thing i really do think people think it's antiquated this is what i think i think people have these two different ideas of form and rhyme both of which are wrong but some people think like oh okay shakespeare and you know um how shall i compare thee to a summer's day and then we have people who immediately associate it with like dr seuss and disney songs and you know, I think people who who think this either way or both are kind of narrow minded, but I think that's where a lot of it is coming from. I think there's not enough people might just not be reading enough rhyme right now. So when they think when their mind goes to rhyme, they automatically have these sort of like negative associations, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We um, <laughs> I have to confess to it. Rattle when I first started, it wasn't me who wrote it, but we had it in our guidelines. It said something like, um, you know, um, don't only submit rhyming poems if they're good. <laughs> and I was like, so I, I took that out. But um, but it, I mean, it struck me as odd because like what we accept poems if they don't rhyme, if they're not good. I don't know. That was very strange. But but there is that weird, that weird feeling. And it might be just you get so many, you know, bad sort of hallmark verse type submissions um, or as a professor, you know, teaching, you know, creative writing 101, you end up getting a lot of very a similar thing that the haiku world experiences where, you get all this high five seven five stuff that's not really haiku at all. It's just a sentence smashed into five seven five. I mean, you get a lot of rhyming poems that um, that that are just you know sing songy stuff that's not real poetry. Um, so I guess I understand, but but when it comes together, it just comes together better than anything in my opinion. Um, let's see. Uh, well, let's hear another one. I want to make sure we get to a good number. Okay. Hmm. Let's do. Okay, this poem is called September and it is on page 62. It's another uh, song or it's another poem where the song title is the title of the poem, you'll see. Okay, September. I know I could do better. I could go outside, get some sun. Instead, I watch from my window as the snow falls as if God is grating Parmesan over the city. Say when. I've never had the chance to love desperately, but I felt rage worm its way through my stomach like a parasite. So many things I cannot say aloud. It would be wrong to bring a child into the world to watch me suffer, to suffer with me, won't win me any friends. Am I worse off than anyone else though? I sip my dark roast, spell my name in carrots on the counter. I am no longer, at least, a monument to damage. My rib cage a coliseum, its broken edges jabbing at the sky. The faint sounds of earth, wind, and fire play in my kitchen, and I smile, even shimmy a little. None of us will last forever. Someday, maybe soon, 
everything will ache a little less. And that was September. Um, another, and that's a free verse poem. The, the tricky thing about uh, writing mostly in form is that when you, we come across a poem that's free verse, you're, you know, the reader, I'm kind of like, oh, is that a form I'm not noticing? Do I not recognize something there? I'm looking at the end words. I'm looking at the, you know, seeing if the syllables like move in a certain pattern and then find like, nope, that's just free verse. Um, uh, so, so who, um, do you remember the first poem you wrote that, that really meant something to you? Was there an experience in that? Because there's, there's a few poems that I wrote in my life that, that just are the only reason I ended up doing poetry. There was one that sort of got out sort of an angry angst I had going just by accident because I had a creative writing assignment and as a senior in high school. And another time where I um, later in college wrote a poem where I surprised myself and sort of knew something I didn't know. And I realized that there was some kind of like psychological understanding that I didn't have consciously that I did unconsciously and the poem brought it out, which is kind of like a miracle. Um, is there anything like that that happened with you that, that really turned poetry on for you in the process of writing it? Yeah, I think it would have to be this pantoum I wrote when I was um, in college in Richie's class, which I mentioned. That was my first exposure to the pantoum and we read um, September Elegies by Randall Mann. Do you know that one? Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so amazing. The one that's um, like an elegy to those four boys who died by suicide because they were gay. Um, and I just remember like seeing how these lines were repeating, how lines two and four were becoming one and three. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, like, this is mind blowing. Like to sort of have like that technique, but see how it comes together and it makes sense. And that's when it sort of clicked for me that form that form content relationship right like that's why I like things like guzzles and pantooms and villanelles because when things repeat um I think it really makes it feel more urgent and more important so I think writing that pantoum that I wrote for that class I have no recollection of what it was but I just remember thinking like this is so there's this whole world of poetry that I know nothing about and this makes me want to know more Mm -hmm. yeah very cool um, so we have a bunch of questions already. Um, Mark Grinier asks, um, how much do you think formal things like rhyme and meter impact the content of your poems? Is is that something that happens? Do the, do the rhyme and meter draw out new content? Definitely, definitely. Um, so I think kind of like what I was just saying, I really um, like things that repeat, whether it's refrains like, you know, phrases in a villanelle that come every other stanza. Or things like sestinas or canzones, which I think we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Can, can yeah, I, yeah. Um, I really like how when you pick certain words or certain phrases that happen over and over and over, it forces me to think about my obsessions and things that happen to me or things that happen in my head over and over and over. Because um, I have sort of a ruminating personality, which I'm sure is not unusual for a poet. But um, I definitely think there's that form content relationship um, with repeating poems and I think also when you're doing a rhyming poem and you're just trying to make, you're trying to like have words that sound similar and that rhyme, it forces you to create content that's sort of outside the box. Like I have a poem in the book where I rhyme plastic straws with menopause. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think that's one of the cool things about rhyming where, okay, I have to make something rhyme and how do I make it creative Um and unusual and rhyme in a way that somebody hasn't seen before. 
So, yeah, yeah, that's I, one of the things. Yeah, it's one of the things that stands out in the poem, too. It, just, it seems like you have a lot of fun finding the rhymes. It reminded me of uh, A.E. Stallings, who does very similar things. So, like, where you have rhymes you know, stretched out across three words to get a long word to rhyme and, and little, you know, slant rhymes that are, you know, close but huge. I mean, they're really cool rhymes in the book. Um, let, let's hear another poem, and then we'll get to, we'll do Judith's question after that. Hey, I want, hmm, which poem? Okay, this is a poem I've never read in a public setting. So I, I love everybody watching this and that's why I'm debuting it now. This is called At the New Year. Oh, and what page? Oh, page 20. Okay. At the New Year. Yet again, I won't admit how many times I've done it. I'm kilometers away from seashore, drifting with the current of my sixth grade yearbook, sifting through the sloppy seaweed spelling out, you rock and have an awesome summer. As addictions go, I think it's pretty weak. Why not group sex like the rock musicians or crystal meth like Joe from Chevron? I've gone home now for the winter, my blue room a whirlwind of destruction, those debate team trophies jammed beneath the bed where some dumb nights I dream about a boy I thought I loved. Or was it someone else? My one-time best friend, 6'3", connoisseur of beer, his bald spot quarter-sized and slowly growing. The two of us slow dancing on a pitcher's mound in outer space with nutter butter crumbs stuck in our braces, neon green. But now I'm older and those shaky hands are phantom pressures on my waist. Today, the sky is like a schmear, thick, creamy pink, and on my laptop, Flea plucks at his base while sweat drips from his off-white hairless chest. I don't know why I'm like this still. A text, a Hallmark card, a Facebook post, it's all collected here and echoing. When we were young, my one-time best friend looked at me and asked if I could ever fall in love with him someday. I smirked and answered, nope. That was great. And that was uh, At the New Year, another poem from uh, Out of Order. Um, so let me go down to... Uh... Judith had a good question. Judith Fay says, Alexis, do you recognize your bold, beautiful, youthful confidence? And that's all kept confidence in your poetic voice. Um, Hair Sestina is a perfect example. Where do you think it comes from? And that's just a great question, I think, because there's so much, um, you know, confidence is such an important part of poetry. Like you have to have, you know, you have to think that your words mean something, first of all, to write them down. And then, and then you have to like doubly so to like share them with anybody. So it takes a lot of um, either just like um, not thinking at all or confidence. <laughs> so, uh, so where do you think your confidence comes from? I love that question, Judith. Right, Judith? Thank you so much. Um, what's interesting, I'm really glad we're talking about this, is that I've read three reviews of the book that describe me as sort of insecure, which I think is really interesting. Like, this is what we were talking about earlier, about how weird it is to have other people describing your work. Like, two reviews have said I'm jealous of my friends. Like, one is like, oh, she's insecure about how she looks. And to me, it's so interesting because I do think... Um, I do think I'm relatively confident. And I think writing this book gave me a lot of confidence. I think there's this idea that in order to do certain things, you should be confident. Um, but I think it's sort of the other way around. I think you get confidence from doing the thing. Um, and I think if it weren't for my mom, and I'm not just saying that because she's watching this, I'm saying it because it's true. She is where I get my confidence. Um, she never doubted me when I was pursuing poetry. She never said, no, you have to go into econ or no, like, poets aren't that's not a job like she never did anything like that so I think 
all these things kind of go together, like the people in my life and the ability and the um, opportunity I've had to write about the people in my life. That's kind of where I get it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another one. It's a, a lot of questions. I, I love it this week. Um, it makes me, uh, it's, where is this one? Okay. So Cindy, sorry, it keeps jumping on Facebook. They jump. Um, uh, let's see. I'm curious about your decision to write in a particular form. This is uh, Cindy Buchanan. I'm curious to write about your decision to um, write in a particular form. Do you decide to write in a particular form from the onset or see what form the poem needs? Ooh, you know, I think it, I used to start writing and then kind of decide on the form, but now I like to just pick the form first. Um, I have the the book, the Miller Williams Encyclopedia of Forms. Do you know that one? I, I recommend it to anybody. It's just this thick book of all the forms you can think of, sonnet, redouble, like just all this super cool stuff. And for now, I think that's what I like to do. I like to just kind of arbitrarily pick a form and then see if it works. And sometimes forms will turn into other forms. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried writing that poem. It's I don't remember what it's called. Maybe you would know, Tim, but there are three lines, like the tercets, and it's really, really, it's not a tercerima, but it has mm-hmm. tercets, and it's really, really difficult. And I wrote it, and I sent it to my friend Connor, and he was like, it's not good, not good, Alexis. And that's why I was like, okay, let me choose a different form. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes the form and the content don't go together. But when that happens that like, you'll see, you'll notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, I don't know a lot of forms. That's the thing. Maybe I need to get that book because I, <gasps> but I can't keep things in my head long enough anyway. So if, even if I knew exactly <laughs> which one we are talking about, I probably couldn't recall the word um, to, to go along with that um, um, confidence question. Um, Joe Barca asked about your thoughts on rejection in poetry when your, uh, your submissions are rejected. And, um, and I think, uh, even last time when you were on Poets Respond, just kind of casually, you thought, I never thought I'd get a poem in rattle. And, um, so, so sorry about that, first of all, but, um, <laughs> but, but what is it? How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, and, and keep confident when it is, I mean, the best poets have an acceptance rate of maybe 10 or 20%. Um, you know, most people it's lower than that. How do you stay confident in the face of rejection? How do you take them? rejection in poetry has never really phased me all that much. I know a lot of people get really upset about it. For me, I don't get upset about rejections themselves. I think that's, I think if, if you are going to write or do any sort of art, you just have to accept that. I read somewhere that you should have at least a hundred rejections per year and you're submittable or something. Mm -hmm. For me, it's not the rejections, but I do kind of roll my eyes when the way the rejections are worded is a little bit silly Um, For example, when journals say, don't stop writing because I rejected you, Mm -hmm. for example, like, no, I'm not going to quit poetry because I didn't get into your magazine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, I just kind of think you have to accept it because, you know, someone's going to reject you, but someone, I guarantee it is going to accept you. Yeah. Yeah. Writing on the other end, writing rejection letters is very, very strange. It's hard, you know, and and you almost over the years, you just kind of A, B test different phrasings because you, I mean, the thing is that you have to send in mass to everybody. Um, You can't do it individually. I mean, unless it's a very small journal. And so, and then you end up like, you don't want to discourage people who are just starting out, but you don't want to like belittle people who are veterans and don't need any encouragement. Um, And then, so, so finding some kind of like level where you won't like make people depressed, but will also not infuriate people who don't need any explanation um, is a very tough line to find. And, And I don't know if I've ever done it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, cheers to all those who try. Um, 
yeah let's let's hear another poem um okay let's do hmm okay this is another one i've never i don't think i've ever read this in public so let's do it it's called writing home five years later and what page oh page 60 okay writing home five years later I'm a high school senior and my brother, age 16, drives us home in our black Prius, his eyes half closed like clamshells while his hands narrowly graze the wheel. Turning left, he's almost catatonic in his post-exercise stupor. Neither of us speaks. Occasionally, he tugs at his shirt that reads Peninsula High School Baseball, sweaty and clinging to his chest. A 90s hit blares from the stereo, a song I've always dodged. Sometimes the trumpets make me cry. Hey, Chris, I ask him, do you ever miss our dad? I've been thinking about it and I get so sad. He squints. I picture them in dad's apartment, gnawing frozen waffles and undercooked potatoes, late night hoops on Peck Park's basketball court. I look at my young brother, wonder how he can be so strong yet in this moment microscopic. Silence. Then he stammers, do you want a chocolate malt? I'll buy you one. I shake my head, feel myself parting from my body. The car gets smaller and smaller till it's gone. Yeah, excellent. That was uh, riding home five years later. Um, and the cool, cool thing I love about the show is that I get to read a book and then, uh, you know, a poem makes me want to ask a question. And then there's the poet like a couple hours later. Um, so when I was reading this, I was wondering about um, how your brother, if, if the book helped your brother too, and like your relationship, I've, you know, I talked to a few people, I mean, you know, in, in, in having the poems out there, you know, saying things that we haven't been comfortable to say, you know, helps with healing and helps with the relationship. And other times it's just like shut down. And I don't know, do, do you find that, that like, I mean, cause all the people, I mean, you're dealing with your grief about your father's death, but everybody around you was too, of course. So how have they felt reading your book? Has it been helpful to them or, or not? Yeah. Um, you know, I've read some real horror stories about people reading about like opening their son's book, for example, and finding themselves in it in a very unflattering way, or somebody opening their cousin's book and saying, that's not how this happened. Um, I think, think, I think my family's been receptive to it. I think, I know my mom has said that sometimes she gets a little bit emotional, but that's because she was with me and she was living through it. And I think, um, I think in this poem, for example, my brother doesn't remember offering me a chocolate malt. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that's such a small thing that was what, 10 years ago. Um, but to me, I always found that so touching for some reason. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, it can be a really good thing to to learn that something you kind of offhandedly did really meant something to somebody. Yeah, I mean, that's such a touching moment in that poem because, you know, he can't talk about it or, you know, but wants to offer something anyway, which is a, such a such a wonderful little moment and, and great. I mean, one of the things that poetry does is remember those moments and save them and be able to share them and, and appreciate them later. Um, so so great memories just throughout this poem, this book of poems. Um so you're also a teacher and um in ninth grade, I think it said, right? Um, how do you do you teach English and creative writing at all, or is that what you teach? Yeah, I teach English. Um, I was teaching in Oakland, which was wild. I'll spare you the details, but it's 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 difficult. It was a difficult school, difficult situation. Um, but every once in a while, like when you if you can help on like at least one kid 
find themselves through literature, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Like I've always thought English class is so important, not just because you're learning, you know, how to write and mechanics of grammar and organization of the five paragraph essay, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, that's all very important. But I think reading something and really identifying yourself in a book you're reading and then getting the courage to tell your own story in your writing, I think those things go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Like when I was in high school, I remember reading The Catcher in the Rye. I love The Catcher in the Rye. It didn't age very well. I think a lot of people don't get it. Um, that someone said to me like, oh, you're just like Holden Caulfield, which I'm realizing was probably not a compliment, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that's so, that's why teaching English has been so great because people are really learning not only about like English, the subject, but about themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, what I wanted to ask was, um, is, are, do certain poems you find resonate with them? You know, it's a tough time, you know, ninth grade in a tough environment in Oakland, um, do are there certain poems or stories that that kids seem to gravitate toward? Yeah, everyone likes the Orange by Wendy Cope. Mm -hmm. You know that one? Um, I'm sure. trying to remember those. Um, at lunchtime, I bought a huge orange. The size of it made us all laugh or something. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, love, mm -hmm. I'm glad I exist. People really like that. You know, I taught um, I taught We Real Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks, expecting you know like hoopla and excitement and some kids said is this a joke like nobody liked it hmm. so every year someone likes something different which is really cool um teaching at the college level was also really interesting at wisconsin because people i would taught like matthew dickman um kim adonisio and people consistently like those mm -hmm. so it's always interesting to see what people enjoy and what they value yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and the ages, too. I mean, how do you find the difference between, you know, that, that ninth grade and the, uh, and the college age, um, as far as the receptiveness to, to trying new things like, like poetry and different poets? I think when you get to college, it's a lot easier because there's, there's not really as much of the, oh, I have to be cool and impress my friends type of posturing. Mm -hmm. um, like, when I was teaching ninth grade, the boys came around eventually, but how many boys realistically wanted to write poetry? Like none of them were going to admit that it was cool. Um, but then when you get to college, people want to be there and they chose to take your class. So that's like different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think we have time for two more poems and one should be that canzone. So let's do uh, the second to last poem, whatever you want that to be. Okay. Um, okay. What poem should I do? Let's do... Okay, this one is called, What Do You Do When the Pain is Gone? In the At a novelty, oh, sorry, last page, page 84. Okay. At a novelty store in Baltimore, my two best friends make a beeline for the vibrators while I hold band t-shirts up to my chest, Led Zeppelin, talking heads. They giggle, you're adorable, innocent, like a child. It's funny, I never thought I'd live to be this old. Years ago, I gazed out my bedroom window while the sun concaved like a porcelain dish. I remember a woman in a Jetta screaming along to Prince, a paper-wrapped churro in her left hand, cinnamon sand on her chapped, droopy lips. Sometimes I dreamt of her, thumb-sized, clad in a red flannel nightgown, leaping from the bridge of her husband's shoulders. I felt blessed to witness it. Sometimes I miss it even. Miss what? I'm not sure. 
Yeah, another excellent poem that was, uh, What Do You Do When the Pain Is Gone? Um, and, and that, I, you know, you already mentioned that there are a lot of musicians in the book and just a lot of like pop culture references that like very set it in time and place. And a lot of times people are resistant to, um, to do that, to kind of like, cause they think, well, what if my poem is being read in a thousand years and nobody knows what a churro is or something? Um, do you, um, like, how do you think about that? Like, like, why is it that you keep coming back to different, different musicians and different songs and different, um, you know, cultural, cultural artifacts? Um, so I've always been really drawn to, to pop culture in my writing. Part of it is that it sets the time. So people reading this in 2000 years, like, you know, they might not know who David, they'll know who David Bowie is, but if they don't, the off chance they don't like, they'll know, okay, this guy was a musician. He was popular at this time. He was important to the, to the author. But I think the real reason I like to write about musicians and songs and things like that is that I've always found myself really, really drawn to rock stars, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting. I'm such like a a straight edge, drug-free person. I don't engage in that partying lifestyle. If you're watching this and you do like good for you, but I don't. Um, So I think I think what draws me to it is that underneath all the bravado and the guitar solos and everything is a lot of vulnerability. It's a lot of people who are hurting. Um, Look at the 27 club, all the musicians who died when they were 27. Now I'm 26. So it feels especially relevant because I'm realizing that these people who had all this fame and fortune were not that much older than I am. So I think it kind of is important to me in this book because I'm realizing that there's not really that much of a difference between people like you and me or people like Kurt Cobain. Like when you strip away the fame and the fortune, we're all just people and we're all just kind of trying to get through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Good answer. Um, let's see. Um, so, so Dick Westheimer says, comment, I am unfamiliar with many of the pop culture references, but that does not diminish my appreciation of the work at all. And that is something interesting, too. Like you assume I don't know a lot of the references either because I'm sort of in my own little bubble. If they're in poems, I read them. And then if I'm you know curious, I look them up. Um, and now I'm starting to have a daughter who's 12. So she's sort of you know getting more. So I know a few more pop pop people. Um, but I'm kind of always one of those clueless things. But like like uh, Dick says, um, you, know, you don't need to like it's like a flavor, you know, that it adds stuff to it. Like you don't really need to know exactly who the people are to appreciate um, as much. Cause it's like being in your head, which is really, um, really interesting. So so one last question before we go on to the last poem and then we'll talk about that a little bit, too. Um, um, so, so this book is very personal about, about family and, and you kind of cu- getting through, um, what happened in your childhood. Um, and, and that's pretty common for a poet's first book. And then there's this kind of like difficulty of like, well, now that I wrote about the thing that drove me to become a poet, what do I write about? You know? And so what are you working on now, now that this book is out? Um, is it continuing the same themes? Are there something new that you're trying and going in different directions? Uh, how is your writing going on currently? I have thought about this nonstop every single day since this book came out because, yeah, this book, I mean, it takes place from childhood to age 24. Like, that's pretty much, that's most of my life. Um, So now I'm kind of having that, like, now what experience. Um, And I'm really afraid that I'm going to have some kind of sophomore slump in my second book. But what I'm trying to do is just kind of figure it out as I go along. I mean, instead of looking at it as a future book or a manuscript, I'm just writing poems as they come to me. So like Heartbreak Guzzle, um, I wrote, you know, focused on the shooting in, um, in Texas. I wrote a poem recently about all my celebrity crushes just because it seemed like fun. So I'm just really trying to take it a day at a time and see what happens 
um, and then writing about it as it goes along. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's hear this. Uh, it's a longer poem, um, the uh, Canzone. I'm glad you said it first because I didn't know how to pronounce it. I didn't know <laughs> if it was Canzone or Canzone. Um, but let's hear that because um, everybody should know this will be the prompt for next week is to try to write a Canzone. And uh, so, so um, and I want to talk about this form too because yours is a little, little unique. Um, uh, what page was it? I'm trying to find it. 11. Page 11. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll just dive in. Um, this is called Some Days Are Harder, and then colon, a canzone. I'm slowly learning that I should adore myself. I know I can't ever go back to sleepless nights and angst. The word adore is so poetic. Shakespeare did adore a twinkling star, remember? Or a rock music trope. It's you that I adore. You'll always be my whore. But I adore the word, the innocence. I think it's right to be naive and vulnerable, to write yourself a villanelle or maybe eight or more. It's for the aching soul, you see. It's like camembert, like lounging by the sea. I don't know if anyone will see the point in arrogance, this whole adore myself thing, cocky with a massive C. I think my brother might. I sometimes see him in my own reflection, in the back on bus rides, even though it's pretty easy to know he's far away at least to see the harbor in his photos or the Hard Rock Cafe downtown, the place where our barack condemned them, riots happened. Can't I see that all the world's in pain? I see it right there on the news. My mother says, all right, enough. You need some sleep or maybe write all afternoon or drive down to the sea until you realize that you'll be all right again. I spend the evenings in the bright light that simulates the sun, a door to my apartment open. Is it right to eavesdrop on my neighbor, even right before he kicks the bucket? He's gone back to hacking in the mornings, even back to crying, so I've heard. I used to write about whether he'll die in style, rock a silver necklace or a massive rock, the band tight on his finger. Does it rock to be old? Doubt it. Think about James Wright. I've wasted my life. Yikes. A total crock of bullshit, Caitlin said once at a rock concert. No. A restaurant, fricassee and bowls before us, the potatoes rock hard. My friend from UC Irvine, Brock, hates that poem. God, I adore him. I know Caitlin always adores pretension, like that sculptor who carved rocks but seemed to think he ruled the country, back when we all thought we'd end up happy, back then. I tell myself not to go back to constant reminiscing. Never rock the boat, I tell myself, by thinking back to everyone who screwed you over. Back to basics, deep breaths, pasta, of course, writing. Maybe a tad across my back. I heard the news today, not don't look back in anger. Why get a tat you can't see though? So why not something I can see? On my shoulder maybe. In the back of my own conscience, I know I'd adore a floral one that tells me to adore myself. Yes, I remember. I'd adore myself if I were edgy. I don't see the point of anything these days. Why rock a smile if it's not authentic, right? Mine once was, yours too. Want to go back? Yeah, and that was, uh, um, some days are harder, a canzone. And um, and so that was one of my favorite poems in the book because it, it's the poem where it's the starkest example of that really casual, like ruminating voice pushing against a really prominent form because of the, all the repetition. Um, and I looked up the canzone 
And and yours is a little different than most of them because it's um it's the Italian kind of like the Italian ballad that was like the precursor to the sonnet. So it's kind of like, you know, somebody decided to take the ballad that, that was going on in Italy, and I guess it's Petrarch probably right or Dante, I can't remember who, but um, and then and then take uh, you know one stanza of that became a sonnet almost. Um, and, but but yours have these repeated words in, in this in this canzone anyway. The adore keeps coming back and the rock keeps coming back. Um, so, so what is it about the repetition? Like, why was it the poem set up like that? I was curious. So I actually don't like this poem at all, which is why I'm so happy you like oh, it. Really? That's I, interesting. Didn't, I didn't like writing it. I don't like reading it. Um, but do you know who David Yezzy is? Uh, yeah. David, mm -hmm. Okay. So David has a poem in his book, Black Sea, and the poem is called The Consolations. And I'd never seen anything like it. It's, um, it is the canzone. It's where the same words kept coming up. So I messaged Jim and said, hey, what is this? And he said, it's a canzone. So I was like, okay, I have to try it. Um, but I'd I didn't have any instructions or anything. So I sat down with his poem and I put numbers next to all the words. And so I knew like the order that the words should repeat in. So I chose the words adore, back, rock, right, and see. And then those are the only words I use at the end of each line throughout the piece. Um, I know Anthony Hecht said like, oh, a canzone is a sestina on steroids. <laughs> That's exactly what this was. Like, mm -hmm. it's just so, I don't know why it is the way it is, like why I chose these words, but I think I had a lot of fun with it. Like rock, you know, arbor rock, like rock, rock, sea, fricassee. Like that's what I like so much about end words. You can do anything you want. You can be as creative as you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. It's kind of like, I mean, here it's it's like a Sestina mixed with a sonnet, like a crown of sonnets almost or something. And and they can be any length. So you don't have to do um, the same number. It can be, go on and on or it can just be two or three um, stanzas. But um, but it's such a cool form. And um, I'm surprised that you uh, you don't like the poem because it really works really well, I think, um, just because of the, the formal influence is so strong. It's like it has a huge wall to push against for the voice. It's really cool. The way it works. So, um, so that's going to be your prompt for everybody. Um, it's going to be to write a canzone um, in this form, though, with um, sort of Sestina-ish, where the rhymes are repeated um, and make and confess something in your canzone. That is going to be your prompt for the uh, for next week. Um, and we haven't had a form type prompt in a while. Um, this seemed like a challenge one. So, you know, if you don't, if you can't come up with it, don't feel bad. I, I picked it because it seems challenging, but also seems fun. Um, so, very cool. So that is uh, some days are harder a canzone. Um, Alexis, thanks so much for being a guest today. It's been great talking to you. Um, I love your book. It was really fun sitting down with it uh, today when I finally had some free time to sit out on the deck and read a book. Um, it was just a wonderful companion for the afternoon. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for watching this. This was the most fun I've had in weeks. So awesome. thank you. Thanks. Well, take care, Alexis. Me too. Yep, and that was uh, Alexa Sears. You can find her book, I mean, her website, alexasears.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-S-E-A-R-S.com. Find this book and uh, other stuff by Alexis there. Um, now, we're going to take a quick break and go to our, um, our open lines. And uh, the prompt for last week was to, um, it was basically to take an abstraction um, as a title of the poem, so t something like sorrow or happiness, and then write very concretely about that. So that's your prompt for this week. You can, uh, and that was picked by Katie Bickham, uh, last week's guest. So um, you can have your prompt poems if you'd like to share those. You can have poetry spawn news poems about current events. You can have um, poems you've published recently and are feel proud of. How to do that if you would like to participate 
is uh, to email your poem first to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. So I can show it on screen. So email it right now so I get it in time. And then I'm going to share the Zoom link um, right here. I'm going to put it in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. I'll pin them to the pin the comments as well. There they are. Come on in only if you would like to share poems. If you have a poem to share, come over here. If you don't, just come back and um, or just stay right where you are, I should say, and just keep watching on Facebook or YouTube. Um, but if you have a poem to share, come over to the Zoom link, and uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll, if um, there's some people I'll do first because we did them last or missed them last time. Um, but um, if you have anything to share, come over to the Zoom. If you don't, just sit tight right where you are, and I will be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, as I mentioned, the prompt for this week was to take a um, abstract concept and write a concrete poem about it. And um, luckily, uh, we had a Megan poem this week too. It's been a while since we had a Megan sighting. Um, she, I think, got a little burned out with writing, but now she is back. So we have a Megan poem in just a second. Here is my poem. Oh, and you know what? I wanted to share the picture of the bear, but I forgot to download it, so I can't share it. I actually didn't take a picture of this bear myself. Um, but a neighbor did, and I saw that, and I was going to share it. But this is my poem. It's called Guilt. A black bear lounges in the cheap grass, chewing at our trash. It must have found the chicken we'd forgotten in the freezer. Five pounds of free-range meat, meaning that when the meat could move, the bird had its own two square feet in which it could turn its two feet. That if it so chose, it didn't have to touch its neighbor. At one end of the grow house was a door to the sky how the brighter light must have beckoned. By law, that door must be open half the day. The dirt run on the other side must have one living plant. But the birds don't care. Bred for their size and stupidity, they spend their forty days at the feed trough, gaining strength in the constant jostle for premium space. It's not unlike the bears in Alaska, who fight for the right to have salmon leap into their mouths. But also it's different. For three years in our freezer, water from that warehouse that was stored in the muscle of our chicken sublimated and refroze, forming ice where the ice shouldn't be. Now the meat isn't tender. But the black bear doesn't care, and its fur is a cinnamon. It looks so soft in the sunlight that it calls us all to sleep. Soon we'll call our bravest neighbor, who will run at the bear with a pair of pots. From a distance we'll join in the banging. It's for his own good. A problem bear might be shot, but for now let him eat, body numb with impossible pleasure, only his mouth is moving, his muzzle buried in the grease and the goo of the garbage bag, as if these were the fallen shards of heaven. For the black bear and the dry grass, they are. As guilt, my poem about a black bear, which I remember to pick the, uh, get the photo, but I don't have it. Um, but it's a beautiful, very fat for this time of year, cinnamon brown black bear that was just chewing at the trash like three houses down. Um, anyway, this is Megan's poem. This is Envy. The other mother at the park laughs easily as she obeys her son's command. Hire, mommy. She grabs his swing by the chains, runs backward, suspends him briefly in the air like a dandelion seed and lets go. He squeals Velcro shoes, kissing the sun. My daughter, of course, echoes, higher too. I pretend I don't hear. This mother keeps pushing, 
The boy is so high, the swing groans in warning. Her smile is cool and liquid, lemonade in July. Doesn't she know what happens when you let go? Doesn't she know that children can't fly? It must be nice believing the sky has cupped hands. She says she'll send him all the way to the moon. I dig my toe into the dirt until something resists. So that is Megan's poem, Envy, for today. So um, let's see what you have in someone's... Um, Saham Karami. Hi. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. So what do you have that you'd like to share? Okay, do you see me? I do not. If you want to click the camera button, um, you can okay, jump on. which is the camera button? Um, it's um, a little, it says um, video. It says, yep, yep, here you come. Yep. There okay. you go. Hello, it's great to see you. Okay, yeah, nice to see you. Um, so where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from Orlando, Florida, mm-hmm. which is where I live. Oh, we have somebody else here. Oh, wait, hang on. Don't worry about it. I, I remuted. <laughs> Sorry, Carolyn. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, so what do you have to share with us? Okay. Um, I wrote a poem by the using the prompt mm-hmm. called Grief. Oh, uh, uh, Carolyn, keep yourself muted for now. <laughs> okay. Because um, we're going to, we're talking to Shaham oh, now. Oh, it's great to see you. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, are you there, Shaham? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Okay. Shall I go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. This is Grief. Okay. Grief, okay. Something you can't hold for very long, like a block of ice or a tray coming out of the oven without getting burned. But you hold it anyway. The sun rises and sets and you hear the cranes clicking like prehistoric birds in between something you ate or something you drank. And it might as well be tomorrow or the next day, tumbling over each other like children down a slope. And it might as well be an ocean somewhere, or a galaxy, or the night on a sofa where I realized I was floating in space, the whole house, an illusion. You no longer want endings or beginnings or yoga. You abbreviate the hours or elongate the seconds. It is all one thing, and it was, and is no more, an entire world and all it ever was, hovering like when my father held me over a crevasse and my feet went hollow, so I closed my eyes. Or riding on a bus in a strange town when it occurred to me I would never see my father again. But that was easier, much easier than his death. And even that was easier than this. My life, a thousand years in a wooden keg, rolling down the hill out of sight. And people are telling me, isn't it gorgeous, the sunset? Oh, that was just a wonderful poem. That was a uh, grief. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. You're welcome. I sent a link for another poem, but maybe you don't have time. I just didn't know people. if you'd have time. Yeah, I think we already have... Yeah, th- too many people. Okay, Yeah, I no think problem. so. But next next week, or if you don't do a prompt again, uh, we can share this yeah. next time. Well, that was such a great prompt today that yep. she gave. Yeah, Alexis. that was a good okay, one. Thank you very much yeah, for thanks. having me. I enjoyed yep. being here. Yep, bye. Again, that was uh, Shisham Karami with uh, Grief. And now let's go to, uh, let's go to Mark Grinier. Tim. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I have a really short poem. It wasn't exactly written to the prompt, but uh, it, it responds to the prompt at least somewhat. It's called Hope. Hmm, let me, uh... And I wrote, wrote it after reading a poem called, called God's Inkwell by Jan Harper. Okay, Hope. 
The night spills out, it seems, on whatever plane we dream. It lives and dies in living things, is poured or drained from lips that sing, the beginning and the end of dreams. Wow, that was excellent, too. Great poems in the open mic. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mark. Yeah, it was Mark Grinier um, with Hope. Let's go to, um, let's go to um, Brent Stauffer. Hey, Hello. Brent, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Hey, that was, that was interesting. A little, wind, a little dialogue box or something came up on my iPad and said, would you like to unmute? <laughs> yeah, that's how, how it's that? supposed to work. So I'm supposed to ask people and then they just click, but it doesn't oh, always work. Yeah, no, that was, that was cool. Today's show has been really great. From yeah. from beginning through all of Alexis's stuff and the the the, the prop poems have been excellent. Um, yeah, it's been a uh, uh, it's been uh, really strong, a joy. Yeah, well, thanks. I, yeah, I've been enjoying it too. So, what do you got for us? Okay, well, um, I actually kind of reverse engineered this one. I was uh, struggling with uh, settling on an abstraction to write about. <clears throat> and I was just uh, thumbing through poems, and then I was thumbing through my own poems, and um, I found an older one, and I was uh, I just got distracted with it and started editing it, and I suddenly realized that hunger was not only a great title for it, but it was what it was about, uh-huh. which I had not realized uh until until today when it, it occurred to me ah very cool so that, a reverse that, engineered prop poem yeah. <laughs> so i'm gonna so it's so it's called hunger um an innumerable number of dogs paws dug under this park bench a groove for my converse all-stars to dangle in my coffee stands cooling in the grass in the satchel next to me, Rilke and Rankin agree to argue in a lively tango. Three eager ducks trundle toward me up the green slope. This man-shaped shape, me, hunched on the bench under thick scarf and coat, must, they think, bear their hidden daily bread. They left the water for this. Their small dark eyes glisten with yearning, their long throats gurgle a chorus the lake forgot, and me with a lack in all my pockets. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that ending. The, uh, the, uh, the long throats gurgle a chorus the lake forgot, and me with a lack in all my pockets. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brett. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, it was Brett Stoffer with uh, Hunger. And now let's go, to, let's go to Carolyn Codd now, and hopefully we can get this right. So we, okay. Perfect. There we go. Thanks. So there's nothing in the background, and I got yeah. you on the screen. Excellent, Carolyn. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Um, okay. Well, this is a poem about hope. Okay. And um, I always associated hope with gardening ever since I was about six years old when I first started gardening. So this is hope. Okay. Spring arrives. The gardener plants zinnia and marigold seeds. Seedlings of pansies, petunias, and other flowering plants. With a bit of care, in summer, her small garden will be full of color for her and the bees and butterflies to enjoy. 
In the well-planted vegetable patch, tomato, pepper, and cucumber plants will be offering up the makings of refreshing salads mm -hmm. and savory sauces. The squash, pumpkins, and chrysanthemums wait till autumn to do their thing. And the gardener plants bulbs of crocuses and daffodils. Eventually, the garden fades. Winter sets in. There will be cold, dark days, blustery days of sun and clouds, blizzards and snow shoveling to endure. But through it all, the gardener will be there, anticipating the revival of spring. Oh, that was great, too. Thanks for sharing that, Carolyn. That makes me, uh, speaking of hunger, makes me hungry for some uh, delicious salad. I haven't eaten dinner yet, and uh, oh, okay. that, that sounds like good stuff. Thanks for yeah. sharing that, Carolyn. Okay. Um, next, let's go to, um, let's go to Cindy. Hi. Hey, Cindy. Me? Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And this is Cindy. Cindy Buchanan. Ah, Cindy Buchanan. I see. Hi. I have your poem right here. So welcome. It's first time on. It's great to see you. Yes, it is. Thank you. And thank you for that great interview with Alexis Sears. I just love what she had to say about form, that it was kind of a puzzle that you could work with. And I think that's how I approached the prompt this week, too, because it was a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to um, write into that constraint of the prompt. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a poem called Grief. Okay, I have it up. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. A month after our daughter was born, we planted a white dogwood. I didn't know the legend of the crucifixion wood. I just liked the symmetry of the four-petaled flowers which bloomed every spring, plump white crosses with a bright green pistol in the middle. We delighted in how trunks and limbs grew out and up, how they shimmered and glowed even on the rainiest of mornings. Our daughter grew too, of course, but around the time of her own blossoming, we sensed the start of a slow blight, a withering, glimpsed out of the corner of our eyes, transient, unthinkable. When she began to droop, we tried to clarify the slurred edges of her poppy-addled speech, explain away her pinprick pupils, excuse the sudden rush of flush upon her pale and clammy skin. We propped her up, sought advice for how to treat the scourge, but the sickness was relentless, and suddenly she was gone. When we found we could no longer tolerate white, or green, or anything that grew. We fled the garden, traded the strangle of twisted roots for a place far from the damned wood of dogwood trees. But still, green blades push their way through cracks. Oh, another great ending. Yeah, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Cindy. It's great to, great to have you on. Um, and Thank where are you, you calling from? I didn't ask. Uh, Seattle, Washington. Excellent. Yeah, very cool. Well, I hope, you, hope to see you again soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yep, take care. Uh, let's go to Dick Westheimer. Uh, <clears throat> I was just recovering from Cindy's poem. Yeah, that was good stuff. The open lines, I mean, I guess this is a great prompt because the poems have been outstanding on the open lines tonight. I'm loving them all. Yeah, I kind of <clears throat> kind of feel un unworthy. I actually, um, I'm going to do one of my poet Poets Respond poems. Okay, let me give, me, uh, give me a chance to pull it up. And uh... Okay, Considering the Continued Price of Quarantine is the title. Okay. Um, and it actually was sort of, I was thinking about the abstraction, you know, uh, feeling, and then this news story came up about, uh, the launch of, um, capstone spacecraft, which will be circling hmm. 
sort of circling the moon in what's called a halo orbit, meaning you can always see it from Earth. Or oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. You can always see Earth. So it, rather than to go behind the moon. Oh, interesting. How would they orbit. even do that? They must have to constantly adjust? Well, it's a Lagrange huh. uh, point. Oh, okay. Very interesting. There, uh-huh. And it, it takes very little uh, fuel, which is one of the reasons why they're doing it, because eventually they hope to put um, a space station in that orbit mm-hmm. for and without much fuel to keep it in in that orbit. Oh, very cool. So uh, there's a lot more to the story, but I you can geek out on your own. On <laughs> yeah, the, I think I will. I think I will. On the, the mathematics of the very, very elliptical, uh, near rectilinear, it's called. Oh, wow. It's that, that elliptical. Wow. But that's not part of the poem. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, this was, I'm sure you've had these, uh, all of us, that you get to the end of a poem and you just wish that that's not what you found out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, damn, that's not where I wanted to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, the epigraph is from the European Space Agency describing a unique lunar orbit, always in line of sight to the Earth. Uh, The orbit as seen from Earth will appear like a little lunar halo, considering the continued price of quarantine. Out here from my halo orbit, I see life team on my home planet, where I'd lived before the viral times. I'd wave to my friends below as they walk to a show, Romeo and Juliet, my least favorite. Oh, but I really want to go. Brian and Jay sit at a high top, beers in hand at the bistro where we'd often meet. I'd sip an IPA. They'd diss the pitching of the hometown team as I picked at my order of so-so veggie tacos. But no one waves back. I walk out by the creek and startle a great blue from the reeds. She flies into the nearby trees, peers at the seven motherless ducklings I saw yesterday and the day before, paddling in their adorable duckling way downstream, always downstream. Tomorrow the scene will be the same. These, my always surprised companions, replaying the same dance until the season turns and they move on. Out here in my halo orbit, I make adjustments expend a little fuel to nudge myself a little closer to the home place to stabilize my way. I have enough propellant left to return to Earth if I want, to risk re-entry, to rejoin life on the surface. The question remains, is the risk of me burning up in the heat of a viral moment worth Romeo and Juliet, worth sitting at the bar after the show with my buddies, worth dinner with the guys, worth saying goodbye to the ducklings in the great blue before they'd abandon me for the long winter ahead. Out here in my halo orbit, I am unsteady, not sure that the certainty of being alive is worth being alive, not sure when I will finally exhaust so much fuel fighting the gravity of it all that I'll be stuck for always in this distant ellipse. Yeah, I definitely see what you mean about that ending. And um, now I remember reading it and, uh, you know, f- resonating too much <laughs> with, that, with that sentiment at the end. Um, yeah. Thanks. It was a great poem. Thanks for sharing that, Dick, as always. Thanks. And thanks for the, the interview today. It was, it was wonderful to have somebody. I mean, 
I was intimidated by Alexa's literacy. That was just like overwhelming, but in a good way. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks, Dick. Bye. Um, let's go to let's go to T.R. Pelson. Hey, T.R., how you doing? Good. How are you? Happy Sunday. Yeah, happy Sunday to you, too. It's good to see you on a Sunday. I know. I was so mad at you for changing it to Mondays and discriminating against us who have to actually work to pay for our poetry habit. But however, I get that you can't make everybody happy. I know. There's just no way. It is impossible. But but if you can't please everyone, at least please yourself. Isn't that how a song goes or something? (laughs) Because it's the best time for me. Um, so, So what do you have that you'd like to share? Did you get my email? Um, yep, I did here. It is a uh, sonnet, Birds Never Nest Here, right? Yep. Okay. And the reason I chose it, um, it's fairly recently published in an anthology called Poets Speaking to Poets. Excellent. Echoes Echoes and Tributes. And um, it's pretty much what it, the title pretty much describes it. It's all like poems in response to other poets. And mine is um, after Richard Hugo's well-known craft book, Triggering Town. Oh, very interesting. Uh, we were going to, uh, I was thinking about having that as a theme for one of the, you know, tributes of, of, of you know, dialogues or something like that. Um, so, yeah, this would be cool to hear. Yeah, that would be a fun theme for Rattle as well. Um, the reason I chose to read it today is an interesting reason that um, I got my first round of edits back from the editor that I'm paying to hopefully put together a manuscript that somebody will want to publish. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very much, um, we were talking about confidence earlier, very unconfident feeling like, oh shit, I suck. This book is going to suck. She wants me to, she's butchering all my poems. Um, Tim, I don't know how you'll feel about your acceptance rate with her, but only half of my rattle poems made the cut into oh. <laughs> my own manuscript so that just goes to show how subjective oh for sure yeah. poetry really is <laughs> well my advice uh, is to just not take feedback you don't agree with very seriously i mean you know if you're starting out it'd be one thing but you know what you're doing so i uh i wouldn't listen to her too much <laughs> but that's just yeah i mean the main thing that's helpful is knowing like what order to put them in but yeah there's certainly some of her feedback i'm just gonna veto and say you know what this is my poem and if i try to change it it won't be my poem anymore mm-hmm. and maybe i have to put my foot down on some I, things. i've talked about this before but we have um there's a lot of times where I've, i don't do much editing hands-on um, but there's sometimes where like a section is just like off and we're like, oh, the the poem would be great if it just ended here, if you change this. And so many times people will say, oh, well, that was the part that I workshopped and people wanted me to change. Here's the original. And then they'll send me the original and it's great. <laughs> and it was just the, um, you know, just over like somebody else's head, like a poem is a singular individual experience. And there's a difference between like, once you know what you're doing, I think the intricacies of an artist should be the thing you focus on and just you know, have people help you out with clarity and things you don't catch, but you know what you're doing. So I wouldn't change much. Yeah. The clarity is the big thing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. That I mean, that's one thing because we are like stuck in our own heads. Page. Yeah. Like we can't see mm-hmm. what people can't see and which is why we do the critique of the week and try to get that balance of like understanding how other people perceive the things we don't know or that they don't know that we know. It's a very difficult thing to get around, but, uh, but as far as like lines and things, just, I wouldn't change much unless you agree with the changes. So I just, I just trying to save your yeah. manuscript really quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was 
is one of, this was, I think the only poem out of the ones that made the cut into my manuscript that she did not have any negative comments about. So I thought, well, maybe I will write in tonight, tonight's open mic on a note of confidence. <laughs> okay. Birds never nest here, after Richard Hugo. You've never heard of my town. It straddles forgotten river where the main street trestle, now broken, once crossed. Now a ferry paddles back and forth Sundays. On the west side stands the butcher's shop, the tenderest meats. On the east, his wife picks grapes and cherries, bakes pies to feed her other lover, a concrete mixer. We pray at dinner here. Barges carry guests of every faith to downtown docks. We put down pillows and towels in spare guest rooms, serve pancakes and the ancient books. We pray. Those who don't repent just disappear. It's a mystery where the butcher finds his prey, the nearest ranch, 400 miles away. Uh, excellent ending there, too. Great endings in all the uh, the prompt poems, or the, the open mic poems. Great stuff. Thanks for sharing that, TR. And good luck yeah, with the thanks, manuscript Tom. editing process. I know it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, take care. Uh, let's go to Audrey Friedman next. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hey, Audrey. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Um, this poem that I am going to read was my poet's responsive mission this week. It started with a thrift shop photo, mm -hmm. and I gave the matriarchal figure in the photo a story inspired by what life before Roe versus Wade might have been. Yeah, very cool. Let's see here. This is the Depression. Mm -hmm. The Depression. Grandma Gertie stands in the back row, felling over her flock, all in skirts and white blouses or black slacks and ties. Each of her hands rests on a shoulder of one of her daughters. Family reunion at the Silverman of the Silvermans at the Cutler's Bungalow Colony in the Catskills. No one would notice the secret grandma would like to drown in the lake or bury deep in the grass. Grandma wasn't all chicken soup and knedlach. There were times when there was no poultry in the pot, no money for the rent, just a baby to mourn. She had to be blindfolded, taken to the back alley, do the thing that kept her depending on amitriptyline, to paste that benign smile on her face in all those black and white photos. Oh, very, very powerful poem. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. Thank you. It was Audrey Friedman with uh, The Depression. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I can't believe how good the poems are this week. Let's go to uh, Caitlin Buxbaum. Hey, Tim, can you hear me okay? I can. How are you doing tonight, Caitlin? Um. Pretty good. Also have a question. Uh -huh. Do you have a setting on your Zoom that hides non-video participants? Hides non-video participants? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Okay. Well, I do, um, though, if someone has their video up, I am more likely to pick them next because um, then I see they're ready, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think maybe okay. if somebody doesn't have I their video up... I thought that's probably <laughs> what you're doing. Um, it's just... Sometimes, I mean, I'm not at home right now, and sometimes the internet is 
harder to load like mm -hmm. it's harder to listen to you guys because it's trying to make my video go so whatever anyway no no <laughs> now it's all... i know we're all on the same page it's now. all good yeah yeah and i don't you know i don't always but it's just if i see someone who looks like they're alert then i go to them before i go to somebody who's a mystery <laughs> understandable yeah understandable so uh what do you have to share um so i had two poems from previous prompts but um for the sake of time i guess um i'll just read the first one well you can do both the, the second one's pretty short if you want to do the both you can i think okay all right um so the first one is on the coal miner prompt mm -hmm. and i did what i do for like the three elements review poems and try to just like use the words as uniquely as possible so it's not actually about a coal miner mm -hmm. but the important words are in there so Interesting. <laughs> Um, and this is one I shared with my uh, Rattle Regulars group. So Angela and Brent and and Dick have all uh, seen this one before, but oh, nobody else cool. has. So. Well, a couple other people, but anyway. <laughs> okay, so this is called um, Gemology. Creekside, little fingers separate the silty soil from itself, culling coal-colored stones from the shore to carve a temporary home for a Humvee small enough to palm, large enough for young imaginations to see buried treasure. Parents call the child away. Car gets caught in the tide of expectations, lost in the sand of days a mile deep. Family camping trips spread thin. An unintended time capsule waits to be discovered. Could I be so lucky to find myself the unsuspecting miner fated for its retrieval? My fingers descend into the earth, blindly searching for diamond fodder, poem fuel glittering with memory. We dug for hours. My dad forgot. My mom remembers. Oh, very cool. I love that poem fuel. Um, and then you have the next one, which is pretty short. If this were a Mary Oliver poem, ah, from last week's prompt. Yeah, and I actually, when I got the prompt, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to write. And then I was, I think I only caught like a little bit of last week's show. And so I was rewatching it later and just like half listening. And all of a sudden I had an idea and I was like, okay. Oh, very cool. Um, and this one is, is kind of sad. Um, I feel a little bit better now <laughs> than I did when I wrote it. Um, <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> also, I don't know that this is the most up-to-date version because I didn't have it on my computer. I just had the rough draft in my journal and like typed it up real quick. So this one's a work in progress more, okay. more so than the other one. But anyway, if this were a Mary Oliver poem, I'd go on about nature, human, animal, vegetable, or mineral, and the ways the birds and the grass inspire me to be irresponsible, to be woman, brave and strong and sure of myself, even if not the future. But I am not Mary Oliver. I am alive and desperate and delicate, constantly praying for certainty. I have faith and doubt. I have love. And now and again, the pounding hooves of blue horses thundering in my ears. Oh, another great ending. Yeah, yeah, great. Just all around poem. Great endings, especially today. Thanks for sharing that, Caitlin. Thank you. And for anybody who's not super familiar with Mary Oliver, Blue Horses is the name of her, one of her books, mm -hmm. um, which is, is my favorite of hers. And I found out recently, 
um, or maybe I saw it before and forgot. Um, but the painting is by someone named uh, Franz Mark, which mm -hmm. I don't know him, but he was in some like artist painter group in the what 1800s, I think late 1800s with um, Vasily Kandinsky, who is my favorite abstract painter. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, Another that connection is. to things that I like. So anyway, that's all. For sure. Very interesting. The blue horses. Hey, thanks so much for, for sharing mm -hmm. that, Caitlin. Okay, and let's go to um, Carla Schwartz. Hey, hello. Hey, Carla, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Um, I turned out my lights so that I can watch the fireworks on the lake. Oh, excellent. Oh, is tonight window. the fireworks night for you? Well, I live in New Hampshire, and so they're, it's free. I'm sorry, people can, it's not, it's legal to do fireworks, so there's lots of personal fireworks all uh -huh. around the lake. And, um, so I'm actually looking out at Lake Minnesaki right now, and then I get to see, you know, these bursts of fireworks oh, very right cool. behind my computer screen. Yeah, so. we have it's very illegal here where I am because of the fire risk. So uh, if we see oh. a firework, we call nine one one. Oh yeah, no, I <laughs> like literally the that. cops come and I, arrest you. So I, and, and I, people I, are good about it because they're, you know, they know that it's true. You'll get arrested, <laughs> which makes for a very peaceful night, though. Right, right. So. Oh, so I actually wrote this poem today uh -huh. Excellent. Uh, from the prompt. I wasn't sure I was going to get one, and it's called Freedom. Okay, go ahead. I have it up whenever you're ready. Great. Each morning I swim in a large boat-filled lake, my paddleboard tethered to my ankle, not a shackle to tie me down, but for safety. Boats can see me. As I kick I, as I pull, my board loaded with bright orange things, a PFD, a dry sack, follows me. I swim long and hard, a mile or so, stroke to the beat of whatever songs come up in the shuffle. I might think about the news, a horrid state of affairs, or how my father stopped swimming when he couldn't let go, or when their songs come up, of Asa Brempner and the band, and band, all gone now except for the one who smoked, who sing to me of pressing on against despair. Toward the end of my swim, I turn on my back with my face to the sun, continue my stroke, my kick, and I smile and breathe in the air. Yeah, excellent. I love the rhymes there. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Angela Gartner. Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing? And I see Bev Wendell Atherstone is here. She just came in. I was going to go to her first because I skipped her last week. So, uh, Bev, hang out. I'm not going to skip you again. But anyway, let's talk. How how you doing, Angela? Good. Actually, there's like crazy bombs going off in our neighborhood. Oh, really? <laughs> so, I'm like, like yeah. this today and tomorrow will be like a war zone that's like we're very suburban, but like, mm -hmm. you're not supposed to do it, but it's just like, yeah, that's the, I don't understand. Like something changed in the last few years where I just hear that it's like, did the fires become really cheap or something? I mean, or I don't know what, what happened, but something economically seems to have changed because I've seen video like every year. It's just like, especially like LA, there's some like helicopter shots and it's just, I mean, it's, 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 it's out of control. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and they just, in in our state, they just made it 
legal for to buy consumer, but communities are still saying no, but it, it, it doesn't matter every year. It's just like, you know, it's scary to walk the dog because mm-hmm. it's like everything's going off. And like, the, I mean, literally you're walking through smoke. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is- yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, the hospitals are full of, you know, people with uh, messed up hands and things. Yeah. But, but I wanted to actually read, um, I actually did write a prompt, right? I, he totally inspired me right after the show and uh-huh. I wrote one really, but then I kind of want to save it. Cause I'm like, Oh, maybe this is actually pretty good. So I'll probably save it. <laughs> okay. But actually you inspired, um, I'm going to promote this. So apologies if I do, but, um, the poetry um, postcard mm-hmm. fest oh, is yeah, coming. it's great. Yeah, I, I should talk about that. Do you know when the deadline is? Um, it's actually July fourth, so they still oh. you still have time to sign up. And so I'm actually this is the second year I'm doing it, and it's so fun for anyone who's never done it before. Basically, you're writing like 31 days in August of postcards, and it's like. And you get like a list of people that you send to. And I'm actually creating my own postcards this year. And I'm actually, um, my theme, which you kind of inspired, I was trying to think of a theme. Like I try to do a theme, um, like last year was books. And this year it's a 31 stages of grief. So I'm doing like a poem on grief every, and my poem, my um, postcards will have a symbol of grief on each one that I'm going to paint watercolor, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it probably won't be that good. But, you know, it's something that, um, you know, it's so cool to get postcards in the mail of these great poets, like mm-hmm. all across the country and all across like the world. Cause like there's people on my list that's from like, not just the States, but like all over. Yeah, for sure. And I, let me just, so we have a postcard poems issue which was two summers ago, I believe. Um, we interviewed Paul Nelson, who's the founder of um, of um, uh, the project. And so, what how it works? If I, so, you pay. Um, it's a donation, basically, to their nonprofit. Um, but you pay. Do you remember how much it is? It was like fifteen dollars, yeah, but don't much. It's it. like, yeah, like fifteen <laughs> or something. Much. Yeah. And so, what you get is a list of thirty addresses. Um, and so, and everybody gets a. So your name is on thirty addresses too. And everybody shares, like, mails postcards directly to people. You're supposed to write them quickly, like, one a day. Just write a quick poem, send it to your person on the list. And so every day you mail a postcard, and you also um, receive a postcard. And um, so it's just this wonderful sharing thing of poetry. And Paul's really into the spontaneity of it. So he loves the fact that you kind of just don't have time to edit, and you're just, like, sending a postcard out, and you're letting that freedom of you know, just having no turning back um, makes some interesting things happen. And um, so you can go to it here. I'll put it up on screen. This is, um, um, he's got every, every year he's got a new website though, which I don't know why he does that, but ppf.cascadiapoeticslab.org. And it's PPF for Postcard Poetry Fest. Um, .cascadiapoeticslab.org, which is his nonprofit that he's, um, he's working on and, and where the fun funding goes for it. So this is what funds all their poetry events that they do every year. It's just a great project. I really love it. Um, so you've got one for us, I assume. Is that what this is leading toward? Well, no, I'm actually going to read my poets respond. I'll oh, probably yeah. during the month of this, this next month, I'll probably start, you mm-hmm. know, 
you know, reading some of the ones I've written. I've written a couple already. I try to try to do it on the fly too, but I like to be organized about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but cause it's, it's, a, it's a lot, but I mean, just to share, like, mm-hmm. you know, all those posts, I still have the postcards from last year. It's just like so awesome to get mail, yeah. like this kind of mail. Yeah, it's so rare you get mail too. And Paul talked on the interview about how like, this is the time of year where everybody feels kind of isolated. Cause it's like, summer and people are doing their own thing and um, it's a way to like push through the summer especially for people who do teaching and things where they're they're on a schedule like that um so so it's just one last thing about it is that the deadline to sign up i guess is tomorrow so go there to sign up tonight if you want to it's very short notice um what paul does is he just collects postcards throughout the year so he'll go places where they have cheap postcards he has drawers full of them and that's what he uses for his own but some people make their own um there's sort of no you know everybody loves everything so there's no holding back just do whatever you can have fun with um, a lot of people go crazy with the art i guess and other people are more simple and just use cheap cards they find places and everybody's happy no matter what you do because it's all in fun um so so go ahead and look that up but anyway let's go to uh the poet respond poem that you have what's that about um it's just we are halfway through um i just uh, every it feels like so much has happened this year like last week i was like so happy but like i'm just i'm so like back and forth like mm-hmm. lately like i'm happy the one week and i'm not happy like you know i'm trying to um it's funny, like, you know, when we talked about like the poem that you guys are going to publish and it was based off a of poet's respond poem because I, I was thinking about like, I read a story about someone who lived 115 and I was like, oh, you know, it'd be nice if someone I know that I wrote about like lived that long. And then, but it's, you know, it's just kind of like every, like there's so much has happened this year. And someone told me like, hey, you know, you know, it's already halfway through the year. I'm like, really? It feels like it's just crazy. So mm-hmm. I feel like this poem is like kind of more of a metaphor, <laughs> honestly, when I wrote it, um, you know, because this like what it's about. But it's just something that I was thinking about this week that, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, it's July 1st and we're already halfway through the year. But it's just like so much going on personally, but also just all the world events from um you know, what's happening with the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just, I yeah, wish I didn't read so much news sometimes, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Well, you as a reporter, though, you probably can't help it. <laughs> oh, I, I am such a junkie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just go into my, you know, little cave and uh, read poems. And on Saturday, I get really depressed. <laughs> but the rest of the week, I, I only have a half awareness of what's going on. Um, but anyway, let's do this. So we are halfway through. And by the way, I'm going to preface this as everyone else's poems were great. Like, this is not as good as everyone else's. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> okay. Okay. As the storm settles in, I sit down with a pen and think about the duck in his plastic yellow slicker who is holding the cracked measuring cup for rain. I remember the boiled apple slices in a crunchy cinnamon and sugar dough that is sitting on the table for a canceled holiday picnic where there's wet sparklers. The duck fell on its side. His umbrella is inside out. The wind is whipping trees and whistling a defiant tune. Yeah, that is an excellent extended metaphor for the, the emotions <laughs> that are uh, you know, going up and down constantly. Um, yeah, I guess great. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. I mean, it, it lives up for sure to the other great poems. A great series of open mic poems. So thanks, Angela.
Thank you. Have a good fourth. <laughs> yep, you too. Yeah, take care. Thanks. And, and stay safe. He did duck. I can hear him in the background. I don't think anybody I know. at home got sensitive enough microphone, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. All right. Have a great take day. Bye. Bye. It was Angela Gartner with uh, We Are Halfway Through. And here's Bev Wendell Atherstone. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm so glad we could get you because I booted you off last week. I realized when Caitlin, I don't know if you were here when Caitlin was explaining about the block people who don't have their camera on. I, I hit a button by accident and I think I kicked out everybody who didn't have their camera on at that moment by accident. I don't know how I clicked it, but that's what happened. So like you disappeared and um, a couple other people, but I don't even know who. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but you emailed me and said, oh no. And, and then, so anyway, so I knew that I, I kicked you out. Um, so what do you have for us this week? And if you want to read the poem that I probably butchered last week, it was a great poem you had last week too. If you want to share that again, just to put it in your own voice, feel free. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'd have to run to the other room to get it. <laughs> okay, well, it's up to you either way, but what do you want to share? Okay. Well, first I want to say that your, your uh, guest today really talked about form in ways that I, I really agree with. It was great. Oh, that's great. So, uh, so today it's about the prompt of writing writing a poem about a feeling without using the word. Okay, so I won't say what the poem's title is till after, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Trapped within a prehistoric age, she meted out venom from her life's page. Capricious, odious as the plague. Thus I, pacing tigrist, sized my cage, pounding back and forth, my stripes began to melt. She tried to calm me, cloying. You're so trim and svelte. Her tactics I recall, mostly how I felt. Her criticism bristled against my pelt. My escape has hardened into a deep design to endure and build a future of my own incline while trying to be fair and not to malign those fear-filled souls whose flash I might outshine. These calculations forged from my vast desire to choose my life and not be someone's hire. Uh, excellent use of the form there, Bev. That was great. And the so determin determination. Ah, determination. Excellent. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that, Bev. That was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, always a pleasure. Glad we could get you on, too. I felt really bad after last show. <laughs> no problem. Thank okay. you. Yep, bye. Okay, I think bye. that is, um, we got everybody who's on the Zoom. I'm going to leave it open because I turned it off early thinking everybody was done, and that's when Bev came back, and uh, I'd already turned it off. So if anybody still wants to pop on, feel free. I'm going to read a couple of the people who can't make its poems um, to get them into the show. Um, let's see. So here's Sharon Ferrante's poem. She says she can't make it. Her poem this week is Regret. And let me uh, fix this. Okay, Regret. This is Sharon Ferrante's poem. Regret. It's not the class never taken or the boy never kissed while shooting silly string at stuck-up girls in the disco. It's not even making a Peter Pan face watching a neighbor paper towel her beagle's ass re um, at the beginning of the word doesn't that mean there's something you can do about it? No, it is but a fa falling dream that doesn't come back after it figures out how to catch itself. Excellent. That is a, uh, Sharon Fronte's poem, Regret. And let's see what else we have here. 
Um, uh, let me see. So here's Ted Guevara's abstraction poem. And as usual, Ted includes a photograph. Um, and his, uh, his title is Silliness. He says, and I played off Anne Sexton's poem Courage, where she mentions later a few times. And he's got this, <laughs> this photo of um, somebody, if you can see it here, somebody vacuuming a uh, grass lawn. Um, which is actually funny because a friend of mine has an artificial lawn and actually vacuums it. <laughs> and he was telling me about how people make fun of him. But it's true. You might as well vacuum up the pine needles with a vacuum cleaner if you got a fake lawn. But um, this, is a, this is a woman vacuuming her real grass lawn as two uh, chickens watch on, bemused, I assume. Okay. And here's Ted Guevara's poem, Silliness. There's always a halt for silliness in moments. Even if you don't realize it as a child, it was always there, like G.I. Joe's Nerf bullets or Sabrina's Corvette hand pushed to that pink bungalow in Malibu. At bedtime, it's still there, no later to, to it. It's tucked in with you. In adolescence, it bobs up like fat apples, the thought of clinching them between your teeth, the most stupidest thing. So uncool if the kids at school would find out. You do it anyway. You risk submerging mouth and nose in the confines of your must-do, still no later. And the places, all of course, even in commencement, when your mind refuses to graduate with parchment. You like to stay behind where silliness is made, of wool enclosing you with its on-call warmth. Even at a board meeting, you sent later for coffee. What good is she to just sit around in front of you, fiddling her fingers like with a rare violin? You don't play. The music that carried you all this time fits your sway, your destiny. At your passing, you doubt if later would get in the coffin with you. Silliness would have dibs on the velvet. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Ted. Always a pleasure uh, sharing your poems. Um... Yeah, here is uh, Nivedita, who unfortunately, let's see. Yeah, so unfortunately, Nivy can't get to uh, the show, but it's great to hear. Sorry, uh, sorry for the change. That was one of the things I felt bad about, is that Nivy is a regular, and um, hopefully we can get some morning shows in again, um, and so that so that she can join us because uh, in India she's getting ready for work at this time. Um, this is Nivy's poem, Joy. Joy, transcendent like the mantra om, earthy like the dewy grass underfoot, complex like a bucket full of tears, simple like a warm cup of tea, messy like a complicated family relationship, clean like a sparkling piece of silverware, edgy like my frayed nerves, cool like ice cubes clinking in a tall glass of coffee, tearful like the clouds on a rainy day, merry like the beaming golden sun, Sad like the death of an old friend, joyous like the start of something new. And again, that's Nivedita Karthik. Uh, you can find more at Nivy's World. That's N I V Y S W O R L D dot com. Um, so thanks so much, Nivy. And if you, maybe maybe you could um, record a poem as a video and send it sometime if you want. Feel free to do that. Um, I do feel bad that we can't catch you. Um, let me see. So this is um, Mariel Baptiste. And this is uh, self-help. And this is another Make an Abstraction concrete poem. Here's Mariel's. Self-help. She lives amongst the vines and vegetables in my backyard. She's there now waiting to draw me away from my dreads and cares. She knows that I'll visit today. I always transplant before the full moon. 
Her eyes follow my approach, focusing as I get to work. She shifts apprehensively, apprehensively as I get busy with the digging and pulling and cutting. But then she relaxes as my body and mind fall into the tune with the rhythm of the garden. Then soon she's humming an old forgotten tune, and I'm joining in with the words. It is in these quiet times that I get to know her. She is elated when my eye catches glimpse of a butterfly. She gets overwhelmed with gratitude. She doesn't mind the stinging nettle. She withdraws whenever I start up the weed whacker. I only summon her up when I have an impossible job to do. But still, I like when she shows up unexpectedly and we complete the little tasks together. That's great. Uh, Self-help. Um, and uh, excellent poem there by Mariel. Thanks, Mariel, for sharing that. We're going to move on to the Saiku for the week. And the Saiku is this right here. Um, it's based on this story, um, which is from the Natural History Museum of L.A. County. And uh, some research they did there, I'll put this on the screen, um, eating bamboo, it's all in the wrist. The ancient fossil reveals the earliest panda to survive solely on bamboo and the evolutionary history of pandas' false thumbs. And this is something I didn't know. Apparently, um, pandas have a sixth digit, kind of. It's a bone, so they have like their four paws, um, you know, make, make four, or their four fingers make, make, make a paw there. And they have an extra bone coming off the side. And it makes it's almost like they get their uh, their fleshy palm part of the thumb without the thumb, and they can use that to hold and kind of roll bamboo, and they call it a false thumb. And they discovered um, in this article in this research, looking back at the fossil record, that the earliest pandas had these false thumbs seven million years ago, and they were actually longer than than they are now, uh, which which raises to me a bunch of other a bunch of interesting questions that weren't in the article itself, like. I mean, it didn't just randomly, like, magically appear even longer than now. So something had to predate it as a sixth finger on their hands. And, and why? And then also, um, you know, why was it bigger then? Was bamboo bigger then, seven million years ago? I don't know. So interesting uh, interesting article, though. I didn't know about these pan- how the structure of a panda's hand. Um, but here we go for the prompt poem. This is Small Talk Around the Giant Panda's False Thumb. Small talk around the giant panda's false thumb. That is your Saiku for the week. That is the show for the week. As I mentioned already, we already talked about it at length, but if you missed it, the prompt for next week is going to be this. Write a canzone that confesses something. You know, a canzone is an Italian form. It's kind of like a sonnet-ish, but we want to do it in the Sestina-ish way that uh, Alexis Sears was doing it, where you repeat a lot of words. So pick some words to repeat as the rhymes as you move through this kind of balladish form. Um, and it's kind of free. You can do whatever you want, but it has to be formal and it has to be Sestina-ish repeating stanzas of some kind. And that's a canzone and that in it confess something. It's going to be a real challenge, but should be a fun one. That is next week's prompt. Uh, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be, um, Troy Jollymore. His newest book is Earthly Delights. Cho- Troy won the uh, National Book Award for Tom Thompson Purgatory like maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, and he was uh, the interviewee in Rattle Number 43, the tribute to love poems issue that we did. Troy's a philosophy professor, actually, in addition to a poet, and he wrote an entire book on the philosophy of love, which is why we interviewed him for that issue. So that's a fascinating co- topic as well. Uh, but his new book is Earthly Delights, which is just available. Um, that's Rattlecast Number 151 with Troy Jollymore, Monday, July 11th, 
uh, the regular time, the regular date, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Monday, July 11th. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great Independence Day for those in the United States tomorrow. Um, hope you have a great rest of the week just in general. And I will see you then and uh, for Critique of the Week. In the meantime, talk to you later. Goodbye. <laughs>